Welcome to The Unapologetic Social Worker, a podcast that talks about resilience and highlights the struggle and compassion in the lives of everyday social workers. I'm your host, Noel Ramirez, and I'm a clinical social worker and public health professional based in the Philadelphia region. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is a bi-weekly dose of unapologetic social work reality. My guest and I unpack real topics that deal with intersectionality, shame, perseverance, and critical moments of how folks navigate showing up for themselves, their work, and their communities. Hey all, thanks so much for tuning in. Welcome to episode two, where we are interviewing Lance, a medical social worker here in Philadelphia. During this episode, we talk about the challenges navigating white spaces as men of color. Lance shares about his experience transitioning from an HBCU to a mostly white social work graduate program. We also talk about the closing of Hahnemann University Hospital here in Philadelphia. Hahnemann was a safety net hospital serving mostly low-income and vulnerable populations. Although the hospital was located in Center City, it was located near several homeless shelters, drug treatment facilities, and provided care to a whole lot of folks that needed it. As a medical social worker at a nearby FQHC, I can say that most of us in the public health community in Philadelphia are totally feeling it. I'm super excited to share our discussion with you. For more information and support, check out noelbramirez.com and be a part of the unapologetic community by signing up and being a part of our mailing list. Currently, I am a neuroscience social worker. I work currently under the Department of Neurology at one of the academic teaching institutions in Philadelphia, where I act as the sole social worker, actually the first to ever hold this position, under the Department of Neurology with the Movement Disorder Center. So I work primarily with Parkinson's, Huntington's, Tourette's, Essential Tremor, kind of help navigate these people throughout the medical spectrum of insurance, medical procedures, medications, authorizations, all that type of stuff. So what you're describing is medical social work. Yes. What what is that? So what is medical social work? (laughs) Medical social work is a social worker who hopefully is well-versed in the different avenues and the different systems that go into healthcare. So that's looking at insurance, that's looking at medical equipment, that's looking at the policies that inform these types of things. And I think for medical, for medical institutions, social workers are really the people that give you the information because you have to also being their advocate, grabbing the doctor and say, hey, you need to have another conversation. And I need you to break it down in a way that is does not have an MD or a DO or DPM or RN or whatever behind their name or PAI behind their name. Explain to them what is going on with their body or what's going on with their loved one's body because this is scary for them. They're dealing with the trauma of one having to be in the hospital. Now they're technically institutionalized and now they're trying to figure out what it is is going on and how do I navigate this space I went out for drinks and now I have a a lower extremity amputation I mean how did we get here that's traumatic and no one really takes the time to sit and say there's like oh well you know you can follow up as an outpatient and go to therapy in the moment You're just thinking, oh my God, I lost a part of my body and I can't think about going to rehab. I'm in too much pain. I'm just trying to replay the nights and the events. And so how do I get you out of that initial state of shock and say, okay, this is where we are now. 
And moving forward, these are the things that we would need to do to put you on a path to adjusting to where you are now. Sure. I think about it as a medical social worker. I think about how our role in this institution is not necessarily to conform to it, but rather to challenge it Mm -hmm. to provide dignity and respect to patients. Right. Which, I mean, there's a shame that almost comes along with being in the hospital or having to go to the doctor. It's seen as something's wrong with you if you go to the doctor. Something's wrong with you if you have to go to the hospital or if you don't feel well. I think especially in minority communities, it's almost like you know you kind of get up and you walk it off. Sure. So, or even in like mm-hmm. the concept of being able-bodied and what that looks exactly. like, and our allergy to sort of sickness and mm-hmm. and also even looking at like this idea of helpism. Right. Mm-hmm. How mm-hmm. do we, you know, we're as medical social workers, you know, one of our values again across the board in social work is social justice is dignity and worth of a person, you know, mm-hmm. the importance of human relationships. And we're working with providers who sometimes are very healthiest, right? You're mm-hmm. unhealthy because of X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. You, uh, you're, you're, your behaviors, you're, you're being non-compliant. Um, oh, they love that word. And how do we as social workers sort of provide some dignity with folks about where they're at? Exactly. How do I meet you where you are? And these are the recommendations, but... Let's also explore, are these recommendations not realistic for you? Maybe you're not going to rehab and you're deconditioning because you have no way of getting there. Sure. So maybe we need to set up home care for you. Yeah. Um, or, or, you know, just, I don't know where to go. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, sometimes it's, oh, call your insurance. Sometimes it's, no, you need to, like, these are places where I feel the, as though you will get proper support. Yeah. So I think that we have a responsibility as social workers in the healthcare industry to, you know, make sure that it's just like, if no one else sees you or has ever seen you and is seeing you right now for what you're dealing with and what brought you into the hospital, I see you and how do we get you what you need so that you can best take care of yourself in the community? beautiful <laughs> and also the lighting mm-hmm. in the hospital oh god is so really gray. harsh it's really great and i feel like we're the professionals that that really tune into that mm-hmm. and, you know when you think about medical the medical community what it means to access care uh there are parts of you that are being exposed mm-hmm. that you may or may not be ready to sort of take in mm-hmm. and at least in my experience in social work i feel like part of my role as a medical social worker, is to 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 be a witness mm-hmm. towards someone's recovery, and also to sit with folks when mm-hmm. they're experiencing those those moments of harsh reality, right? And to let people mm-hmm. know that they're not alone. Exactly. And and what and how can I best offer my support for you in this moment? Because I don't know. Maybe you just don't. Maybe you don't even want to say anything to me. Maybe you just want me there. Maybe. You know, I just grab the tissues and, you know, I just let you cry. So I think the social work community is in this space of it's powerful intervention to to be a witness, to affirm Mm self-efficacy and to also um, to be a a emotional support to somebody in an environment that's fast paced, Mm -hmm. that spits out a lot of information and 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 also is, is problematic in many ways around healthism around ableism mm-hmm. around health disparities how you know as we were talking earlier how do we become the champion of a patient and not only just the patient but that patient's dignity exactly 
Lance was also working in an institution that has gotten a lot of national play, Hahnemann <laughs> University Hospital, which uh, has recently closed down. It has. Um, due to bankruptcy, and there's been a lot of different sort of thoughts and feelings about it because it was a hospital that largely served the population, of the, the public, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, Lance, what are your thoughts about Hahnemann? What was your experience there? And I just, I, I'm, I'm curious to hear your perspective of the whole situation that went down. Hanum was a very large part of both my academic career as well as my place to, you know, uh, learn and, you know, make mistakes and understand how I can be better in medical social work um, because that's my niche of social work that I, that I just wholeheartedly think I need to be in. So the, the closing of Hahnemann is one of the most devastating things that I could have experienced because... The population that the hospital serves, I was very intentional when I got my degree in social work to help people that look like me and to help people that come from communities that were similar to mine and also those who didn't didn't look similar to mine because, you know, we're constantly always looking at the these inequities in health due to race or socioeconomic class and things of that nature. So Hanuman was, for me, I think it was one of the most devastating blows that the city could have taken. This hospital primarily served, it sits between Center City and North Philly. It was a trauma one certified center. It was a thrombectomy center uh, for stroke patients. I mean, there were a, there was a lot of good work that was being done within Hahnemann's walls. And I think the, the uh, American Nurses Association actually stepped in and a lot of the nurses and the unions and were having conversation about this and said, this is a health crisis. And I th- there's no perfect other perfect way to put it. It's a health crisis. You're taking away an institution that serves within a net of institutions that is treating people and getting people the, the care that they need And shutting that down now puts the general public in harm. People are dying. And could we say if Hanum was open, would it be able to save them? We don't know that. But the issue is, is that people are now forced to try and go to one of the other hospitals while the other hospitals are also trying to receive and absorb the the, the fallout from Hahnemann. So, I mean, I I take it very personally because I did so much of my work there and so much of honing my social work craft at Hahnemann. I think it was one of the most unfortunate, and I think it's the epitome of what institutional racism looks like because who are the people that are being hurt by Hahnemann closing? I can find another institution to work at in social work in the medical realm but the people in that zip code, the people who only had to come 10 minutes up the street, how can you see an institution doing or dealing with so much hurt in the community and say, oh, this is better as condominiums? Is that what's happening to Hahnemann? So I can't say for sure. The facts are Hahnemann was sold to an investment banker who has, as far as I know, no medical know-how. He's not a nurse, he's not a social worker, not a physician. He's a guy with money. And keeping the institution open apparently was costing too much. Also keeping in mind, Hahnemann was a for-profit hospital. 
So a lot. What does that mean in context (laughs) of, you know, it's an interesting question because I've always known Hahnemann um, and St. Chris, both owned by tenant, Mm -hmm. were for-profit hospitals. As a social worker, what does that mean in terms of systems, in terms of practice? What are your thoughts about that? So I, I have... I struggle with the for-profit aspect of pretty much anything at this point. I'm having worked in the non-profit public health sector, as I know you have as well, and um, dealing with just health. Health is not something that should be based in finance. It, it just doesn't. Health and money, they should not live in the same house. And my reason for saying that is because people don't get the care they need or have to follow up as outpatient because it's cheaper or it costs less for the institution for me to say follow up as an outpatient when there's something that we can do right now, right here. And I mean, that's going to be with any hospital because a lot of these hospitals are able to claim nonprofit status. Moral of the story, money and health don't belong in the same sentence because they, they, you're contradictory to each other. I can't be healthy if it costs too much money, but it costs too much money to be healthy. Sure. It's like health as a public good versus financial product. Exactly. How much, can I sell you some health today? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a challenge, right? You know, in mm-hmm. the times that we are in terms of looking at health policy and insurance coverage, of course, as well as how we as social workers navigate that, because, you know, one of the, the major values that we have in, in our, in our, in our ethics is, is dignity. Mm-hmm. Of course. And where's the dignity in monetizing access, monetizing quality? Mm -hmm. Um, And in this case, an institution, like access to healthcare. Exactly. For for a population that already had issues with getting link and access (laughs) to healthcare. Sure. What was the vibe like at um, Hahnemann the last couple of months, especially when all of this was going down? So it, honestly, it was so somber. There are so many great people that have been practicing their craft from nurses to physicians to even the custodial staff, environmental services staff, cafeteria staff. There are people who have been there well over 30 years. And now this place is being shut down and now they have to go back into the job market, not thinking they would ever have to be in the job market again because their job was set. They were at Hahnemann. That was where they needed to be. The mood has been very somber, and I feel terrible because, you know, there are people who were just getting their start, speaking to the, the, the medical residents, and, I mean, they're, they come in the door just to be told you got to go right back out the door and will attempt to help you find placements. So that was a huge catastrophe, was oh, that goodness. residents who were starting now had to be replaced mm-hmm. um, because... Uh, they were maybe in the middle of their residency in their mm-hmm. facility that they signed up to be a part of just closed. That must have been very devastating for a lot of It's them. devastating. How have aspects of your identity informed your practice today? That's a heavy question. How has my identity informed my practice? So I think it went back, it goes back to doing a lot of self-work. And we were talking about this earlier. Imposter syndrome is very real, almost like, I'm in these spaces and I don't feel like I belong in these spaces because of some of the identities I share because I am the minority typically in probably every aspect. I am a black male identified cisgender like, like, so 
I mean, so there's not a lot of representation for queer people of color in any of the uh, places that I typically am, mm -hmm. patient population as well as providers. So I think eventually I got to a point where I had to do my work and start seeing my differences as strengths and allowing myself to feel powerful in any room that I walk into understanding that even though I should not have to carry the weight of what it is to be a black gay male in this setting, I also have a responsibility to make sure that you will know I'm a black gay male in this setting and that there's no different work ethic or there's no difference in the uh, ability of service I'm able to deliver just because I don't look like you. So I become a spokesperson without carrying the weight of what it is to be all of these cross, um, having all these cross identities. It's almost like you become a champion for yourself. A champion of the people and myself. <laughs> Which I think is really powerful. You know, I mean, I think this is when in social work, we talk a lot about the use of self of and how these parts of ourself inform how we navigate them. I think my experience has been very different because I do see a lot of queer identified people of color within social work. And I've, but I primarily I've seen, you know, the typical cisgender white woman kind of, you know, the, the go-to thought when you're thinking of social work. So for me kind of navigating those social work spaces as on another layer, because it's one thing to navigate this, you know, spaces in your, like, within yourself and navigate spaces in a professional setting. But now when you're looking at your peer group and we're supposed to all be, you know, social workers, we're all supposed to be able to have the same thought processes and, and uh, openness and non-judgmental attitude, but you know, everyone's doing their own work. Sure. For me, it's been, it's been a ride because I think I had this really like rosy, outlook in regards to oh since you're a social worker you're just gonna get it so I don't have to explain my identity to you I don't have to you know say that you know LGBTQ rights are things that we're still fighting for today I don't have to tell you that institutional racism is a very real uh and alive thing because you get it and I think that I had a very rude awakening because <laughs> it's a very uh there's a, a lot of asleep social workers. Sure. And I think that it, I had to experience that to say, okay, so even within me championing, uh, being a champion for the people, I have to champion for myself within the spaces that I am working. And now I have to even make, so now within the social work realm, I have to make sure that the champion that I am, I'm now using the language to best explain and teach because you might be an ignorant social worker and it doesn't it doesn't say anything bad about the social worker it says something about maybe you weren't exposed to this so how do I best give you this information so that one you can either reflect it reflect on it and change your practice or I call you out for being a bigot I mean it's, it can go either way <laughs> <laughs> it goes either way hashtag calling you out for being a bigot yeah, you know, you know what, what we're describing here is this idea of racial enactments that are happening in our profession. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, 
and perhaps maybe this is a discussion around education. I'm mm-hmm. curious, like, I, I guess I can segue into that. What was your experience transitioning from uh, HBCU in undergrad to a predominantly white graduate social work program? I'm going to be honest, it was, it was a culture shock for me. I went from going to Lincoln University, LU, 1854, first HBCU for sure, to Bryn Mawr College, where the, the, the entire vibe was off. The entire time at Lincoln, you're learning about self. You're learning about who you are as a person of color, primarily of African descent, and kind of learning about, you know, the myths and the lies that have been woven into today's society and kind of unlearning those things and figuring out that, you know, we're taught, primarily people of color are taught to pretty much hate themselves or they're depicted so negatively. So my experience at Lincoln was very love-filled. It was very, it put me in a place where it was other people looked like me and I didn't have to worry about the nuances that go along with being a person of color because the majority is people that look like me. And then transitioning into Bryn Mawr, it was a complete culture shock because I was now the minority, which I'm glad that I had that experience because in the workforce, men of color and social work is, is I, I am definitely the minority. There's not a lot of, uh, of us at all. So my experience with dealing with Bryn Mawr was almost becoming and putting into effect or putting into work all of the things that I learned at Lincoln about myself and about people of color and about the appreciation of, you know, outside cultures that are not the mainstream, you know, white woman, white cisgender woman that people think of when they think of social work. In social work school, you're supposed to be able to have these hard conversations. And it's not always going to be nice. It's not always going to feel good. The one thing that Bryn Mawr has allowed me to do is to kind of grow in myself and tell myself, you know, it's one thing to act impulsively. It's one thing to act in a you know, in a place from hurt. So, I mean, you can curse somebody out because that's one way of, you know, saying, ow, you hurt me. <laughs> I think Bryn Mawr allowed me to build and develop the language to say, ow, you hurt me, but I also don't need to, you know, put the Vaseline on and put on my sneakers and take off my earrings. <laughs> uh, so um, it allowed me to develop that to say, you know, even though my delivery might be blunt just being able to hold people accountable and then have the language behind it I think that Bryn Mawr fulfilled what it was supposed to do in that regard though my experience there coming from the HBCU was very uncomfortable with the few students of color that were there I did not it it just didn't feel integrated it was a, a campus where I was constantly fighting for black and brown bodies and it just it just felt like a struggle and it was like I it was like wonderful education great I love to I I love the learning aspect but when you're you can't properly learn when you're in an environment where you are constantly feeling like you have to defend and attack so it was a struggle to claim your seat in this institution yeah and I I mean it was a struggle to 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 claim my seat so I had to take it and especially in in these uh, white spaces because I've honestly felt like the institution was the champion for queer white women. I, I did not feel protected. I felt like anything that took place, I had to say my piece while also learning and also processing myself and learning who I am and also processing emotions. Sure. It's not, a, um, not the funnest thing to do in the world. <laughs> 
<laughs> sure. It's like, you know, we can call we can call it like this learning process, but it's at the expense of your comfort. Exactly. And moments, sometimes even dignity. Exactly. The one thing I appreciate from that experience is that it left me unapologetic in the way that I address things that don't make sense or the things that people don't realize are racist. Oh, yeah, because, you know, I wouldn't want to go, you know, to North Philly because, you know, they're, they're crazy up there. So that sounds like you're talking about, you know, institutional racism and it sounds like you're trying to allocate um, negative space to a zip code that you wouldn't want to go to because let's also discuss how people had to move into these areas mm-hmm. and how they were deprived economically. Mm-hmm. And so, so it's, it's like calling out things like that. Yeah, and also looking at like, what's the demographic of that zip code? Exactly. And what are you truly saying? And like, how do you deconstruct crazy? What does crazy mean when you exactly. think about... Exactly. So it's like now I have to now I'm in a space where I don't I can very easily let that slide. So I have to pick my battles. But Bryn Mawr put me in a place where by championing being a champion for me, I'm now able to champion for other people who might not have the voice or the lingo or the vocabulary to say in a way that will be received because not saying, you know, if someone lashes out, that's negative. But if they don't have the vocabulary that the person is actually going to receive the information, talking about channels of communication, then it puts me to be able to speak on both sides because it outrages me and I can I can become that person. But I can also have a dialogue and say this is these are the reasons why this person reacted this way or these are the reasons that uh, I'm about to act this way if you don't get it together. So. Yeah, graduate school is really challenging because that's sort of a place where folks are still in their developmental process mm-hmm. of like I'm figuring out this professional identity. Mm-hmm. It's also I feel like you know as a so, as a professor in social work, I notice that it's a very vulnerable place. You know, graduate school. It is in that it's not quite the people in your community in graduate school. They're not quite your friends, but they're not quite your colleagues. There's something in the middle. Yes, and I think that creates a really interesting dynamic personally interpersonally intersubjectively mm-hmm. it's a place where we're creating a professional identity but at the same time it's not quite work um and it's not quite personal time but you're spending a lot of vulnerable quality time with one another in it's a very it's very intimate yeah it's, it's, very, it's very intimate you're formulating parts of yourself and unformulating parts of yourself and in your case what you're describing is something similar i can identify in that being in a predominantly white graduate program or as a person of color just really almost being confronted with the sort of bias Mm -hmm. and for me what was really challenging at the time was it's almost like this this huge shock when one of your classmates is like saying stuff that is somewhat problematic and also where they're coming from that that's that's their context and reality right being able to step back and say okay this is your background yeah so you might not realize the things that you're saying are hurtful and live within bigotry sure 
So now I have to check you. Well, from <laughs> what gets what's particularly activating for me is when I hear it and I'm like, whoa, I'm I'm triggered. I'm having this moment. Mm-hmm. And then I look around and then all my classmates are nodding. Like, yeah, okay. And so that's sort of for me oh, yes. at least like sort of figuring out, you know, what we're talking about is navigating predominantly white spaces as people of color for me it's always been like how do i assess safety mm-hmm, how do mm-hmm. i assess opportunities to show up right how do i show up um and these are all sort of the minority stress moments of in in your in this case unapologetically taking space right um, in a space that is wasn't designed for people exactly like us. it was not designed for us i think that's perfectly said a lot of people talk about social work as a profession that doesn't pay. Um, a lot of people talk about social work in terms of the hustle and the grind. How do you make it work in social work and in life? And when it comes to <laughs> finances, life, balance, or imbalance, how do you maintain, how do you hustle? Well, I'm going to dispel the myth now because I get this question actually a lot from even people who are not interested in social work. You just make it all work. The gag is... I'm not making it work. I'm a mess. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is the unapologetic social work podcast where we're very honest. <laughs> so um, I, th- I think, honestly, all of those skills that we learn as social workers, all of those nuances that we kind of learn within the profession, you have to really kind of reflect and put them on yourself. What does social work community look like for you and how does it help you get by? I would not be the Lance I am today without my social work community. And I have a, a little coven of friends. Um, shout out to Andrew, LaShawna, Sabrina, Naima, Rosie, Brittany, all y'all. So, um, Yo, why is my name not on there? Oh, oh my goodness, don't do that to me. Oh, he, he was waiting for that. I feel like he was waiting to say that to me. Of course your name is on there, goodness. But you're here, so there, there you go. Social work community is important because it keeps you in check. There's a very uh, interesting dynamic that comes along with social work community because we know us. Mm -hmm. I think it's also helpful sometimes because, you know, when you're in it, when you're in it deep, you know, nonprofit (laughs) industrial complex, burnout, compassion fatigue, um, trying to, like, get your stuff done on time it's easy to sometimes forget what your values are Mm -hmm, and to sort mm -hmm. of abandon ship and do what you need to do, quote unquote. And I think social work community, as you're describing for me, is also just a place to refocus what my values are. We have Mm -hmm. a set of values. We're not owned by institutions. We work in institutions, but we're not owned by institutions or organizations. And we have our own value sets. And social work community becomes a place where we... um, sort of refocus on what those values are and show up for ourselves and our profession. Well, that's the end of our interview. Lance, I just want to thank you so much, Lance, for sharing your perspective and your, your, I'm going to do that one more time. And that's the end of our interview. Lance, thank you so much for sharing with us a part of your subjectivity, your experience, and uh, your journey with us. I'm so appreciative, you know. like you're one of like the social work gods so <laughs> whoa did you hear that endorsement everybody so this, there I, is no script to this show by the way i just want so to did i read this right it says social work god right <laughs> i think what's really powerful about having a social work community is as you were saying it, it 
it allows for you to have a witness. Mm -hmm. And they say in trauma work, without a witness to the pain, the pain isn't real. Right. When you have a witness, the pain becomes real, becomes tangible, and then it becomes manageable. So that's it. Thanks so much for tuning into the Unapologetic Social Worker podcast. If you're looking for more support in your social work journey, check me out on noelbramirez.com. That's N-O-E-L-B-R-A-M-I-R-E-Z.com. I offer group supervision on Saturdays at 3 p.m., individual support for folks in the field, and a group text so folks can get social support at all different times of the day. If you vibed with what you heard today, please take a moment to subscribe and review it on your podcast provider of choice. More reviews gives the podcast an opportunity to be discovered by others. Also, if you have your own intersectional social work experience that you'd like to share, please feel free to email me at noelbramirez at gmail.com. Shout out to SoundCloud artist Kabbalistic Village for providing the music in this podcast. And until next time, be unapologetic and keep doing you.